You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing? So, one of the word of prayer. Well, Father God, thanks so much for this time together. Lord, I ask that you would just open our hearts and minds to what I have, what you have for us. Close our ears to any error that I may speak, including what I just said. And Father God, I, I pray that you would just. Um, that you would just teach us from Romans and Isaiah, um, Lord, that you would teach us about these passages, and um, Lord, that you would just fill us, that you would meet us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you don't know anything about Romans or Isaiah, Romans is kind of the flagship epistle of the New Testament. Well, at least it's the flagship epistle of Paul, John might argue. He might say, I have the flagship epistle, but he's really humble, so he wouldn't say that, Right? So, and Peter might say his is, because, you know, he was a little cocky, but, you know, who knows. But it's the flagship epistle of Paul in the New Testament, unless Paul wrote Hebrews. There's a big debate on that. Did Paul write it in Hebrew, and it was translated? Did Barnabas write it? Did somebody else write it? But it's a really good epistle. It's his magnum opus, right? Which means it's his best thing, right? Is that what magnum opus means? Everybody know that, right? Everybody knows magnum opus? And by everybody, I mean the little ones. Do the little ones know what magnum opus means? Do you know what it means? What does it mean? The best, right? It's the best, right? It's his top. Okay, so that's his magnum opus. Now, in the prophets of the Old Testament, a lot of people think the best is Isaiah. A lot of people really love Isaiah. Now, Jeremiah, again, might have something to say about that just because he came second. And we think, well, Isaiah is the best. I like Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a lot of really cool stuff to say. In fact, I like Amos. I like some of the other books. I love Daniel. But Isaiah is the one that gets the most mentions, right? And these two are tied together. And when we're reading our passage in Romans, in chapter 1, Paul opens in a famous passage, Romans 1, 1 to 7. And actually, Romans 1 is a famous passage. But Paul actually ties Romans to Isaiah. He's connecting both. Well, he's kind of drawing on all the prophets, but one of the prophecies he draws on is Isaiah when he mentions it in general about Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is writing to a congregation he's never been to, and he's teaching them about Jesus. He might not get there. Maybe he's going to get there. He's not sure, but he wants to teach them everything. He's just kind of dumping the whole load on them. He knows that they've heard the gospel, but he wants them to hear more about who Jesus is. And so that's really what he's doing here. Okay? Now I'm going to leave out our gospel passage this morning because, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention it just a little bit, but it's talking about the birth of Jesus, and apparently we have a big service next week that's supposed to mention that. So I'm going to leave that out, and I'm just going to talk about Isaiah and Romans just a little bit. So this is what we're reading when Paul says, Romans 1, 1 through 4 says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul introduces himself as the author of the epistle. And that's what you're going to do. You're going to write a letter 
and you're writing a letter to the congregations out there. It's like a circular letter. And Paul says, hey, man, I'm Paul. You need to know that I'm Paul. Here's the letter introducing myself as Paul, right? And then he begins to talk about the good news of the gospel. This letter is talking about who Jesus is right away. He wants them to know about the good news of Jesus. And this really teaches us what the apostles were about and what we should be about, the good news of Jesus. How many of you have shared the good news of Jesus in the last week? Good job. In the last month, in the last year in your life. It's this good news which we are celebrating this morning, both in the sacrament of baptism and in the sacrament of Eucharist, which we'll take up here, right? The two biblical sacraments, communion, Lord's Supper, baptism, called different things, all the same thing. You see, the good news of Jesus is what the epistle of Romans is about, and the promise of the Son of God, or Jesus, that was long prophesied, is foretold throughout the Old Testament. But one of the major prophecies about the coming of Jesus is in Isaiah 7, 13 to 14. That's our passage this morning. And he said, hear then, <clears throat> O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He's really kind of talking to Ahaz there. And he's like, hey, man, I told you to give me something, to say something to me. And the king's like, I don't want to test God. God just said, test him. And he said, I don't want to do what you said. I'm following some other scripture. But God said, do this. I don't want to do that. I'm a legalist. And so God says, is it too much that you are wearying men, but you got to weary me too? And so here's a sign, you fool. Right? And that's what he's basically saying. You are wearying me. Well, all of Israel was wearying him at this point. It was tiresome to him. And if you read the prophets, that's really what was happening. It was tiresome to him because of what Israel was doing. They had gotten increasingly wicked. Increasingly, the Lord was like, I am done with y'all. You are tiring me out. Now, if you know the Hebrew, he says it in not nice ways. Right? Right, Padre? <laughs> He says it in not nice ways, but that's what he says, and it's very tiring to him. That's okay. But the prophecy says then, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Anybody know? Savior or God with us, right? He says, look, and these, this king he's talking to, not the greatest king, but he says here, God with us. God with us. Emmanuel. That's what he's talking about. Now, notice what is said. The one coming will be called Emmanuel, or God with us, and will be in the line of David. Now, God with us points to an important fact about Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. Now, this was, of course, not completely understood in Isaiah's day. As we saw in previous weeks, there may have been, uh, the, the, the word for virgin here could be translated also as young woman. 
And there may have been a person who was born, who had a child and named it Emmanuel, and that was the early sign. But there's a longer sign because we know later on in the Isaiah that this person, this being, this guy is going to be something greater. <clears throat> and we know this because later on, God does explain it to us as we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 1, 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what happens here? Matthew links it to Isaiah, right? The virgin shall conceive, and he tells us that this is linked. These two passages are linked. And so we have it from the apostle's mouth himself. Whoever, whichever apostle, we, we say Matthew, we're not sure which apostle wrote it because he doesn't actually ever say it. But we know from the early church's um, testimony that we think it was Matthew. But he says it. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah, and this is clear. Jesus was God with us, and he is to become God with us in a very new way. And this is what we're celebrating with Braxton this morning in the sacrament of baptism. See, when Braxton came to Jesus, she came to know Emmanuel, God with us. When you all came to know Jesus, you came to know Emmanuel. Now, here's the thing. Some of us, like my brother, my brother Matt, never knew a time when he didn't know Jesus. So he was kind of robbed of that experience when he came from darkness into light. I don't, I don't know, Jonathan, you knew darkness and then came into light. So you had that experience. I had that experience, but I was 12, so I don't kind of, it wasn't like that dramatic. It was pretty cool, but it wasn't that dramatic. How many of you had an experience where you darkness into light, right? So I can get you all to talk about that up here, and it's pretty cool. Some of us, how many of you all kind of grew up in it, and you don't have that, right? And so we forget that experience of darkness into light. And, and if you can hear some of these testimonies, it's pretty cool. We got to hear from Linda Brousseau, for instance. Pretty powerful testimony. Now, some of us have had great testimonies since then, but since we've been saved, but it's really cool. So this is what we're celebrating in, um, in the sacrament of baptism and we're celebrating with Braxton that this morning. She's come to believe in Jesus and give her life to him, and he now indwells her via the Holy Spirit, or through the Holy Spirit for the little ones. Via just means through. Now you know a fancy word. What does via mean? Via, V-I-A. I just said it. What does it mean? Through. Via means through. So now you can go tell your friends, via means through. Guess what I learned in church this morning? Via means through. Yeah, there you go. She, all, she, like all of us, has come to experience Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. So Paul tells us that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by his rising from the dead, right? That's what Paul says. He's declared by God the Son of God by the rising from the dead. No other God has actually done that. We don't actually, we have stories, we have fables of God that have done that, but Jesus was witnessed by 500 people having risen from the dead. He is something special. And he was declared as God by conquering death. 
It was in this act that he conquered death for all those who would turn to him. And Braxton, like all who turned to Jesus, our Emmanuel, was joined with him in his death and resurrection in salvation. Now, after that, we're called to be baptized. Romans 6, 3 to 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, in by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is the outward symbol of an inward and spiritual grace that takes place in our salvation with Jesus. And it is the way that we all enter into the body of Christ. So it's more than a symbol. It contains a spiritual reality. Now, here's the thing. It's not that baptism, going under the water and coming out of the water, saves us any more than taking communion saves us. Jesus saves us. You are saved by Jesus' grace, by God's grace, through the act of faith, right? That's how you're saved. The thief on the cross, when he came to faith, went to heaven with Jesus, and he was not baptized. So we are saved by grace through faith. However, that wasn't the normal way. We as, Jesus, we as believers are called to repent, turn to Jesus, give our lives to him, and then be baptized. In baptism, we are symbolically washed of our sins. We symbolically die going under the water and then rise with him. But this reflects a spiritual reality. Jesus did this for us, not in the water or in the act of baptism. But there's a big but here, capital but. In baptism, we are really brought into the body of Christ, the visible church. This is the way that the body of Jesus on earth, all of us, the church, sees a fellow believer come into the fold, right? They confess before us, and we pledge to uphold them. And so in baptism, there is a spiritual symbolism and there is a spiritual reality, right? There's a spiritual symbolism and there is a reality. This is why we do it in the back of the church. It is the entrance right into the church. It is recognized by the Lord in that fashion. This is why it's a sin to be saved and to refuse baptism. Got to be welcomed into the church. Why? Because all of these epistles and all of this salvation is for y'all, not you, singular. The Lord is a good southerner. Although I hear from the northerners, it's you skies. Paul shows us this when he says this. Romans 1, 5 to 6. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Right? You here is y'all. You all. So Paul's writing to the plural body and to his fellow apostles, and he says you are called to bring the good news to the nations. Meaning that after this, our charge is to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with the nations. <coughs> and what he says here is y'all are charged to do that. Meaning, how many of us are charged to share Jesus Christ with other people? All. All. Right. 
I hear so many Christians give me an excuse to say, oh, well, you know, I, what I do is I tithe and I, give, I, I do this, and then my role is to clean the church or to do this or do that, and then I support other people who share their faith. Is that what Jesus says? Go and share the news. Go and share the gospel. Go and bring other people to Christ, a subset of you. Things that Jesus never said. Things that we wish Jesus said. Because I'm too nervous to share the faith. You are called to share the faith. Why? Because we want others to be in heaven with us. It's an act of love. Are you sharing your faith? Paul, speaking to the Roman congregation, speaks to him, and we'll finish with this, as a group or a body, and it is the body or group or a collective which we celebrate in the sacrament of communion for the Lord's Supper. So if baptism is the entrance rite into the church, communion is the fellowship rite. Here, once again, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united with Jesus as he is in the heavenlies, not in his death. Why are we united with Jesus in the heavenlies and not in his death? Anybody know? Because he's not dead. He is risen. So we can't be united with him in his death. We remember his death. We look forward to his resurrection. And, and this feast reminds us of the resurrection feast that is to come. But we are united with Christ in the heavenlies as he is. Why? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what communion shows us. This is why the power is not in the bread and the wine. They are outward symbols. Believers are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us this. It's the Holy Spirit within us that activates the bread and the wine. Archbishop Cramner, the first, well, who helps write the, writes the prayer book, tells us this in his treatise on communion, the Lord's Supper. This is why we don't reserve the bread and the wine. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell the bread and the wine. He indwells you if you're a believer. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, the outward practice of communion celebrates an inward reality of union with our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Right? We take the bread and the wine, and as it becomes part of you, so Jesus is part of you. That's the symbolism. But there is a spiritual reality. Because you and I as Christians, we live in the Spirit. Think of the Holy Spirit as the oxygen that we breathe. Right? And communion celebrates that oxygen. We all breathe it, and we're united with Christ in the heavenlies, and we're united with one another in fellowship. This is what communion celebrates. Outward symbolism, but a spiritual reality. I think it's a perfect day to take communion with our newly baptized sister Braxton, don't you? Amen. Amen.